Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. We are glad you could join us in what I am confident is going to be another exciting listening episode. I'm Dr. Samal Desai, a member of the Dialogues in Dermatology editorial board and incoming president-elect of your academy, and joined today by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Taylor. Dr. Taylor is someone who really needs no introduction except to say that she is a champion of our specialty and certainly has been an incredible contributor into so many aspects of our field, especially with what we're going to talk about today. Dr. Taylor is also professor of dermatology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Dermatology, where she's an endowed professor. Susan, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Small, and thank you for that kind introduction. Great to have you with us, and let's dive right in. We're going to actually talk today specifically about some groundbreaking research that was published in the December 2022 issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. And I think our listeners really need no introduction to JAD, except to say that we're proud to have a extremely high impact factor journal, in fact, a journal with the highest impact factor in our specialty under the auspices of the Academy. And the reason I'm interviewing Dr. Taylor today is because Dr. Taylor was one of the lead authors on this CME article. And Susan, before we get started, give us a little background into the December 2022 piece, which is actually a two-part piece on variations in genetics, biology, and phenotype of cutaneous disorders in skin of color, really looking at genetic, biological, and structural differences in skin of color. You know, I, I began by saying this is groundbreaking to have a CME on this topic. Uh, tell us a little bit about where the idea came from, your passion about this topic, and what you were hoping to achieve with your co-authors. Well, thank you. Happy to discuss it. Well, first, I want to start with the term skin of color. And some people don't understand what we mean by that term. And with that term, we have identified people who have a whole variety of backgrounds. They can be of African descent, Latinx descent, Asian Pacific Islanders, Uh, American Indians, other indigenous peoples. And one of the reasons why we group them together is that there are many characteristics that are similar amongst these individuals. And by the same token, there are many characteristics that are different. When we group these different populations together, we draw attention to some of the commonalities. And over the years, we're all very aware of the fact that not much research, not much literature was written about these various populations. So one the things we wanted to do was to look and examine carefully if there were genetic and biological or structural differences. Now, with that being said, I think there's a very, very important point that we have to make. And that is that understanding the genetics and the biology is in its infancy. Also in its infancy is understanding the impact of what we call the social determinants of health and how they impact health 
in various skin of color communities. So it's critically important to understand that social determinants of health often play a larger role than biologic or genetic factors attributable to race. And we know that race is a social construct. So we wrote this article to begin to understand and write about the genetic and biological and structural differences in skin of color. And we are hopeful that one of our colleagues will write a very robust article on the social determinants of health so that perhaps in the future we can tease out the impact of these different components on the health of people with skin of color. Wow. Well, that certainly is an undertaking and no wonder that the CME article has two parts to it. And Susan, I would really want to go back to a comment you made, which I think is so valid for our listeners, is that this really is sort of the early part of peeling the onion, if you will, on this That's topic. Right. Wouldn't you agree? Exactly. That is well said. Um, we, we Every day we discover so much more about these various topics. And yes, we are just at the infancy, so to speak. So the information that we were able to identify and publish probably will change in the next five or 10 years, or maybe even one year, and we'll better understand the impacts of health and on specific diseases. And those diseases are diseases that we in dermatology are very, very interested in, whether it is atopic dermatitis or psoriasis, or if it's pigmentary disorders, for example. Absolutely. And you mentioned pigmentary disorders, which is near and dear to my heart, as you know, in the world of vitiligo, melasma and beyond. But there's so many other diseases that you all tackle in this article. And we're, we're going to come to that in a minute. Before we get to the specific disorders, could you walk us through a little bit about some of the genetic and immunologic study data that you all referenced that actually alludes to the fact that there may be immunophenotype differences in patients of color? Sure. So if we think about atopic dermatitis, we know there's a higher prevalence in Blacks in particular, but also some of the Latinx populations. So if we start to look at the genetics, we know that there is a loss of function, filaggrin mutation that is very common among white patients with atopic dermatitis. And that same loss of function filaggrin mutation is common in Asian individuals with atopic dermatitis. Mm -hmm. We would expect or we would think that our Black patients also had that mutation, but they do not. Instead, they have loss of function filaggrin 2 mutations. So there are differences in the genetics between whites Blacks and Asians. Now, we don't know if that impacts atopic dermatitis differently in Blacks, if it might be responsible for that increased prevalence, for example. We see it much more commonly in Black children. But there's still that looming question, could it be related also to the social determinants of health? Wow. Yeah, I think atopic dermatitis is a unique example. In fact, your comment made me remember that if you look at data specifically from our Japanese colleagues, for example, there's a very high prevalence of atopic dermatitis in the Japanese population. Yes. Yes. Whereas if you look in other Asian countries, you know, you don't necessarily see that. Now, could that be, like you said, 
because there's not enough studies. And that very well may be. And, mm -hmm. and I, I love when I read your article that you all call out a call to action that we all need more studies and we need more data uh, right. to really look at this. So there are differences that have been reported in the literature in the upregulation of certain cytokines among different groups. So for example, in certain Asian populations and in particular the, the Chinese population with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, they found that TH17 is upregulated. And the question is, could that be related to lichenification and hyperkeratotic phenotypes that we see in atopic dermatitis in some Asian patients? There's upregulation of IL-36 in Black individuals with atopic dermatitis. So maybe that contributes to lichenified lesions seen in these individuals. And we could also think about treatment and the impact on some of these cytokines. So that's another level to what we discuss in the article. Actually, you kind of perfectly teed me up because I wanted to mention cytokines and you, you already did that. And that was actually going to be one of my questions because we do know inflammatory stimuli, like you said, can be different. That's right. That's right. And, okay. and mm -hmm, go ahead. Well, perfect segue is to talk about skin types, because one of the things that you all mentioned in the article is Fitzpatrick skin types. And uh, I, I want to spend a minute talking about that because currently in our world of skin disease and pigmentation and beyond, uh, Fitzpatrick skin types one through six it has become a very, very common practice for us to use when talking about patients with skin of color. And I appreciated the article mentioning that, but also sort of leaving the way for newer schema and newer classifications and methodology. Could you comment a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yes. So we all know that Dr. Fitzpatrick many years ago created the skin type system to identify patients who are undergoing phototherapy for psoriasis, whether they had a propensity to tan or to burn. And in his original scale, it was one through four. He then later went back and added a type five and a type six for darker skin tones. And in today's world, we rarely use the system to identify the ability to tan or burn. We use it as a proxy most often for skin color. And as you know, skin type five and six have a variety of hues, skin type four for that matter. There are a variety of skin tones and skin hues, and they all don't fit in the classification of four five or six. So although we use it for um, as a marker of constitutive color or skin tone, I think it fails quite significantly. There are other people who will use the Fitzpatrick system as a proxy for race or ethnicity. And that too, is totally inappropriate. It is not a proxy for race, for example. So I think there is a significant need for identifying a system, whether it is a system that we use AI 
pie to help us kind of crack this nut, or if we use different Pantone color cards, whether we use instrumentation like a spectrophotometer or a mexometer to get a number that represents melanin or erythema, I think we have a lot of work to do along these lines. But with that said, many dermatologists utilize the Fitzpatrick system, you know, to as a shorthand for skin color and skin tone. And perhaps from that, the ability of the skin to react with pigmentation, you know, to various procedures, et cetera. That is a great explanation and kind of future direction for where we're heading. Let's uh, dive a little bit in now into some of the specific diseases. And I thought one of the things that we really want to educate our darker skin type patients is always about photoprotection and skin cancer development. I thought we'd start with melanoma because I think you all highlighted several conditions in your article. But let's talk a little bit about hydradenitis suppurativa. One of the things that I thought was fascinating is this concept in the article about not only inflammatory stimuli within HS, but there was also this notch signaling that you all talked about. Do you want to make any comments about hydradenitis suppurativa and skin of color? Because I know that's certainly a disease that disproportionately affects underrepresented populations and significant morbidity associated with HS. Okay. So what we write about in the section on hydradenitis suppurativa is that there are mutations in the subunits of gamma secretase. And these have been reported in uh, certain populations of Asian patients, particularly Chinese, um, Japanese, East Indians, and some Asian populations from Singapore. Interestingly enough, the mutations have been identified in Black, and Middle Eastern populations, specifically Iranian populations. Another very interesting thing that we wrote about is the differential expression of notch signaling between Asian and white individuals with HS. So, you know, this might give us a little glimpse into potential difference pathogenesis of HS between various racial groups. Wow, that's that is really fascinating. And when I read that, I was thinking this is going to end up on the derm boards at some point for residents to know about. So, you know, you all highlighted some really interesting things with that as well. Uh, let's talk now in the last few minutes, maybe about psoriasis, because that's a, certainly an area where, you know, my particular bias is I'm very interested in psoriasis and skin of color. And I thought the table that you all had in the chart that talks about the different HLA mutations, like the HLA-CW6 and the HLA-CW1, and those immunophenotypes, especially in Asian patients, yes. uh, was, yeah. was really interesting. Can you comment? Yeah. So what we were able to identify in the literature and write about was that HLA-CW6 is associated with increased susceptibility for psoriasis in certain Asian populations, including the Korean uh, population, East Asian population, and the Pakistani population. And that HLA-CW6 was also identified in certain Middle Eastern populations. Now, in contrast, 
contrast, HLA-CW1 is associated with increased susceptibility of psoriasis in other Middle Eastern uh, populations like the Kuwaitis and the Turks, as well as Asian population, including Chinese and Japanese and Pakistanis. So what's particularly interesting is that within that broad category of the Asian population, there are differences associated with these various populations and the susceptibility to psoriasis. Now, I'd also like to make the point that with our Asian population and our Korean population, that those with psoriasis have an increased level of IL-17 and also a small plaque psoriasis phenotype, which is different from guttate psoriasis. So, you know, very interesting uh, findings that I think we need to learn more about and understand more about. As is the importance of understanding the phenotypic differences in psoriasis between various populations. That's great. So, Susan, you know, we started our discussion earlier with kind of a broad overview of of your passion in this topic and how to start delving into research. Let's kind of land back a little bit more broadly and talk about diagnostic pearls, clinical challenges in the bedside, which I think can be something that's really helpful for all of our members in many of the diseases from a diagnostic perspective. Would you like to tackle that? No, absolutely. And it's critically important for us to be able to serve patients of all skin types. And there are some differences. So what we have found, and it's been pretty well documented, that it can be difficult to identify something as simple as erythema in individuals with darker skin tones. And this has implications for diagnosing disorders such as atopic dermatitis, as well as psoriasis. Often these patients are either underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed because of the inability to see what instead of a bright erythema, you might see a dusky, violaceous appearance to the skin, for example, in psoriasis. Sometimes the plaques look quite different in patients with darker skin tones. You might not have that, that classical silvery scale. In some of our Asian patients, we mentioned a little bit earlier that you can have small plaque psoriasis that's a little bit different from guttate psoriasis. Sometimes that can be misdiagnosed. With our atopic dermatitis patients, again, many of them present with hyperpigmentation instead of erythema. And if you query that patient, he or she will report that area that's hyperpigmented is actually very uncomfortable, sometimes even painful for the patient. So being able to adequately identify the disorders is critically important. That ability also impacts our clinical trials. So for example, with psoriasis, there's the PASI score. With atopic dermatitis, there's the EASY score, both of which have components of erythema. And if a clinician is unable to appreciate the erythema in the darker skin tones, then often those patients are not enrolled in the studies. And that is problematic because we need to know if our various therapeutic modalities are indeed effective in each of these different racial ethnic groups. So for us as dermatologists, 
being able to effectively diagnose these disorders is really key. So we discuss pearls for being able to make the correct diagnosis. Well, that really is a fantastic place for us to land our discussion and conclude. I mean, you and I could talk for hours about this and really have wonderful pearls and insights. But I want to thank Dr. Taylor, you and your co-authors for your CME submission and publication in JAD. And I want to thank you for joining us today to talk about some of your research. And I look forward to the next opportunity. Well, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. And to all of you, our listeners at Dialogues in Dermatology, thank you for joining us for this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. I hope you found this helpful. Happy learning and happy listening. Until next time, stay healthy and stay well. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.